Hey everyone out there, and thanks for joining us again here at ASAP Nowcast, the podcast for ASAP Now. I'm Amy Ho, ER doctor and ASAP Now assistant editor, and your host of this podcast. Now, by this point, hopefully you've joined us a few times, and if not, welcome. But a lot of you know the shtick. Every episode, we give you a little feature from the magazine, and also one just for the podcast. But we're going to deviate just a little bit from that this month. We are actually going to bring back some content from about a year ago. There is an amazing article that hopefully you saw a year ago, but if not, we will link it in from August 2021 about a super important topic to, I think, all of us and especially to our workforce. And that topic is mental health. At the time, Dr. Scott Passachow, who is a ER doctor in Illinois, authored a really personal and brave story where he shared his own struggles with mental health as an ER doctor going through residency. And he honestly was so striking because he highlighted so many of the vulnerable parts of being a resident and being an ER doctor that makes mental health so difficult. And we wanted to bring this back because it's so important to do an update and see how he's doing. And I wanted to really amplify his message in honor of National Suicide Prevention Week this month and also National Physician Suicide Awareness Day also this month. We will follow that with a nice preview into October for the event of the season with ASEP Scientific Assembly. And for those that missed it, one of the keynote speakers at ASEP Scientific Assembly is Will Flannery and his wife, Kristen, also known as D&L Glockenflecken. Now, I have to say, I fangirled on this one real hard. And our editor, Dr. Dark, has a special interview with them leading us into ASAP. So let's go ahead and get started. Hey, everyone at ASAP Now. I'm so pleased to have joining us today Dr. Scott Passachow, who is a ER doctor and also EMS physician at Southern Illinois University. And this is a really special podcast, I think, for us to do this month because this month is both National Suicide Prevention Week and also National Physician Suicide Awareness Day. And Scott, you had a really incredible story that you shared with us um, actually last August that we have in ASAP Now that I'll go ahead and uh, link in the show notes. But it was such a powerful and brave story about mental health um, and a personal one for you. So I wanted to, you know, first say thank you so much for joining us and then let you, uh, you know, kind of update our audience on what you talked about for those that hadn't read the article. Yeah. So, well, thanks so much for having me um, on. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah. So uh, I'm a second year attending now. Uh, teaching faculty at Southern Illinois, like you mentioned. And probably four years ago now, during my second year of residency, I started struggling with more difficult patients, taking more responsibility for patients, had a couple of bad outcomes, and then kind of felt myself in this like spiral down of, you know, am I going to be a good doctor? Am I going to be there to take care of patients when they need it? My family? Am I going to have a successful career? I started, you know, becoming just a lot angrier on shift and a lot less of the personality that I wanted to have. It kind of culminated with me uh, after a shift and not being happy with the way that the shift went, me taking my frustrations out on a parking cone. And that was sort of a big red flag for me that like, okay, 
I'm starting to not really manage this well on my own. Uh, I had been in therapy before I started therapy again. And with the help of the therapist and my wife was comfortable uh, eventually starting medication. It was a big mental hump for me was like being comfortable taking SSRIs. And, and through that process, actually kind of got worse for a short period of time, like wasn't suicidal when I started therapy and then in therapy became suicidal for a short period of time. Thankfully, nothing that required an admission, just like safety planning and transparency with my therapist and my wife. Yeah. So, you know, fast forward a couple of years, I'm, I'm a little bit more on the other side of this. It's never totally gone, but I'm certainly not suicidal. I'm practicing, I'm functioning well. I'm, continuing the national leadership stuff I love. And I realized that a lot of people around me had similar struggles and we weren't really talking about it. And so I was like, you know what, if I want to help break down the stigma of mental health, then I've got to be comfortable talking about it and sharing the story. And so that's what I did. And thankfully said now was kind enough to publish it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it's really interesting because everything you just said about residency, like resonates so much. I feel like Intern year, we go in, we're super excited. And then we're just like, ah, like we're learning lots of stuff. And then that second year is really when, honestly, I feel like we all get really grumpy, really burned out. You feel like you're not learning as much. You feel like you're just a workhorse. And then people kind of come out of, out, of, out of it around third year, but a lot of people don't. So I understand that since you shared your story, you've also had a ton of people just reaching out to you. What have you, uh, you know, kind of learned and heard from our colleagues during that time? Um, I, I mean, aside from a lot of positive feedback, you know, appreciating the fact that I shared the story, I, I'm guessing if there are people out there who don't appreciate that I shared it, they're not uh, letting me know. And I'm totally fine with that. <laughs> but uh, a, a lot of the feedback that I've gotten is even individuals saying, like, I was kind of on the fence, you know, is this really happening? Do I really need help? Hearing your story kind of put me over the hump of actually starting therapy or being comfortable starting medication. You know, that, that for me has been the most fulfilling. And like, I know for a fact, there's one person out there who's in therapy now because I shared my story. I'm good. You know, that's sort of, I've accomplished uh, at least the basic goal of sharing it. What I've heard from other people is basically what you said as well. A lot of what I experienced maybe was a slightly worse version, but was a version of the stress that all of us experienced during residency. You know, this is something that every October, November, I kind of reach out to the second year class. Uh, I did it when I was in residency and I do it now as an attending and just be like, hey, you know, I want to let you know that this is something that happened to me. It's pretty common this year. You're taking on more responsibility. You're, you've lost the permission that people feel they have as an intern to make mistakes. And you feel like you're not supposed to be making mistakes as a second year. You know, just realize that this is something that can happen. And if there's an issue, reach out for help. Um, either to someone you're connected with or to me or to another faculty member you're comfortable with, but just make sure you're not going through that alone because you are not the only person experiencing that stress and that that struggle of second year of residency. Yeah, and, and that's a really good takeaway because I think, you know, I'm faculty at a residency also, like we we touch base with the residents really commonly, but in my head, it's the same time. It's that kind of fall winter time of second year where I think as faculty, we all recognize that uh, this is, you know, when people get burned out. Um, but it's really interesting to hear you that you make a, you know, proactive touch base with them on this specifically because it's such a high risk period. And I think it's an amazing takeaway um, in terms of, you know, one of the changes we can make 
in emergency medicine. But is there anything else that you feel like really struck you in terms of things that we can do in medicine or just emergency medicine to just help with this whole mental health issue, the stigma, just the fact that residency is really grinding. And, you know, honestly, the job outside of residency is still really grinding sometimes. I'd love for us to find a way to make it easier. I think it's, you know, it's a double-edged sword, right? Some of the the stress and the struggle and the challenge of residency is beneficial because it makes us good doctors and it makes us able to handle, you know, big surges and large events when they happen in addition to our day-to-day work. I know there's a lot of work that ASEP is doing collaboratively with SAEM and AAEM and ACOEP and all these other organizations to try to find a way of making things easier for residents so they can still learn, be great doctors, but not burn out in the three or four years of training. So I think that's really good uh, work. Uh, One of the other focuses is also looking broader in the House of Medicine at the medical boards and at the hospital it's not licensure, credentialing, that's the word, the hospital credentialing process and making sure that we're treating mental health the same as physical health. We're not asking about stuff that may have happened in the past. We're not asking about things that aren't impacting your ability to practice medicine right now. And especially giving people the permission to be in a state-run program, uh, be in a collaborative uh, partnership about their mental health or if they've had substance use issues in the past or you know, something else related to medicine, that because they're in that program and they're adherent with that program, that's not something that they need to answer to with every medical board and with every hospital credential process that, and and this is all stuff that is supported by the Federation of State Medical Boards. The AMA has looked into it and there is about 75% of the country that's adherent to it. And so we really need to pick up that last 25 to 30% of states so that You know, we're asking the right questions, we're getting useful information from the medical licensure process, and and we're not succumbing to the myth that, you know, if a doctor has a history of depression, that that somehow will impact their ability to take care of the patient in front of them. Because we know through lots of research that that's just not true. Yeah, I know. You want to talk about stigma. There's no better way, I think, to feel stigmatized than a governing body asking you about, you know your mental health journey and clearly, you know, giving you kind of docking you points in a way for having it. And I I think another piece of this that's really, I think, important is, I mean, you'd mentioned this, that it's really a, it's not so much that, you know, we went through a tough time and now you're depressed and now you're cured. Like it's such a continual process, check in, um, you know, sometimes longer term therapy, medications, et cetera. Um, and it's been a year since you did this article with us. Like, how are you doing now? Like, what's changed? Um, so, you know, still still in a good place. Um, it's ebbs and flows. Uh, there were, you know, uh, my, my family recently just had a kid and, and we're in the process of moving. And so two big, huge, stressful life events. <laughs> and so leading up to that, knowing those were coming, you know, had a conversation with my wife and had a conversation with my doctor and actually went up on my SSRIs. Um, and so, you know, mental health, just like all the physical health, blood pressure issues, diabetes, you know, it, it's a chronic condition and it's something that needs to be revisited. And sometimes the approach needs to be adjusted. Um, but I mean, five years ago, that's not something I would have done proactively. Um, and uh, I'm really glad that I- I'm able to do that because it certainly made <laughs> it made the stress of, of this move a lot easier than previous moves. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we were just chatting before this, like I have a four week old currently and I'm like, 
the proactiveness of what you mentioned, like I wish I had done because we did not understand how stressful it is. And you start to recognize it in your spouse. And I'm sure, you know, he recognized it in me of just the burden of that big life change puts you so vulnerable for all of these issues, temporary or even, you know, triggering something long-term for sure. Um, now, I will say it's a little bit easier the second time around because <laughs> we, we had an inkling of what it was like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, it's so healthy. It's like we talk all the time. I mean, it's funny because emergency medicine is we wait for things to break, right? And then we run in and patch it and resuscitate it and then move it on. But from a wellness perspective and a mental health perspective, it makes so much more sense to say, hey, major things are coming big life changes, big adjustment periods, maybe now is a good time to start planning for that and saying, what can we do? So I, I love that as a takeaway as well. I, I feel like, again, you've gone through this. It's clearly a passion for you, both you know on a big level and also on a personal level with other ER doctors that you interact with, other staff that you interact with. Any last comments for kind of our peers in medicine on mental health, how to recognize it, seek help, get help, kind of overcome the stigma of, you know, even being able to get help? I guess my two big takeaways are one, the impact of getting help on your licensure is much smaller than you perceive it to be. That was my big concern with starting therapy. And I was like, should I go through my insurance? Because I don't want there to be a record that I saw a therapist Mm -hmm. that someone could discover. You know, like I said, 75% of states and and the numbers are increasing throughout the country um, where it's becoming less impactful. It it had absolutely no impact. It was not a question I had to answer on my licensure for Rhode Island or for Illinois. Um, There's been no discussion about any of the mental health care that I've received when I applied for a job, when I And when I went for licensure in the States or credentials at the hospital, the landscape is getting better and it's going to continue to get better as we're having more conversations about that. So don't don't let the licensure fear be a barrier for you. And two is to just just reaching out and making that interpersonal connection is so important. You know, it doesn't take a lot a quick check-in, a text message, you know, getting a, a drink, whether it's coffee or a, a adult beverage of your choice after a shift, you know, can be really helpful and powerful and just sort of, you know, showing the people around you that you care and that you're there for them. And that's been a big way of either identifying problems or even preventing them from happening. You know, identifying somebody now when you're well of who you, you know you could go to if you started to have problematic thoughts or intrusive thoughts or we're thinking of hurting yourself or something like that can be really powerful. So you almost have a plan and a strategy for what you would do if something like that happens, because it unfortunately is going to happen for a lot of us. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to add on because I think a big part of this is that if you've gone through this and in a way we all have, I think there is a power to sharing your own story and helping other people realize they're not alone. That's really what was striking to me in both talking to you and reading your article, I was like, wow, I felt a lot of these similar things at similar times in training because it's, it's super common. Um, and you know, that's part of, again, why I thought it was so important to have you come back on and want to say thank you again for taking that really courageous first step that I think made a difference to a lot of people, not only in your world, you know, but also I think for everyone that's read your article and then obviously in a lot of your involvement in advocacy. 
Well, thanks. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And uh, thanks for continuing to share stories about this stuff. It's really important. Come join us at ASAP Scientific Assembly in beautiful San Francisco, October 1 through 4. Register at asap.org SA if you haven't already. We'll all be getting together with colleagues to socialize in person or virtual with ASAP Unconventional, and we can get our education on. I'll be speaking there myself on a couple topics on in-flight emergencies and harm reduction on that Tuesday, not to mention that our entire ASAP Now team will be floating around for content throughout the conference, so we would all love to see you. Now to close out this episode of the NowCast podcast, strap on your ER doctor helmet, because have we got an incredible couple as keynote speakers for you. This is Cedric Dark. I'm the medical editor-in-chief of ASAP Now, and I'm with Kristen and Will Flannery, also known as, I'm going to assume, Dr. Glockenplechum and Lady Glockenplechum, but is that even how you pronounce that? You did a great job. Yeah, you nailed it. Glockenplechum. Okay. okay. What does that even mean? That's very exciting. It's a, it's a term used uh, uh, to describe an exam finding in someone who has angle closure glaucoma. So you have really high pressure inside the eye, causes things inside the eye to die off, for lack of a you know easier way to describe it. And you get these little grayish white clumps that develop on the lens inside the eye, which are called glockenflecken. It's, it's yeah, funny, right? We're gonna, yeah, we're, we're never going to see those. Well, it is, but we'll never see that in the ER. I've, You're never going to see I've, that. No, no. It's little tiny eyeball corpses. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. uh you're, it's it's in fact it's pretty rare that any I mean angle closure glaucoma is rare just in general and so uh, you know I I've like only seen it like once so chances are you're not going to see it. Well, most most of the ophthalmologic terms to me they all look like hieroglyphics. Whenever our residents write these down, I have no absolute clue what they're talking about for the most part. I just wait for the plan at the end and hopefully yeah and when in doubt just add an h to whatever the word is and you'll probably be in the clear gotcha kristen what do you what do you do for a living because i'm not as familiar with you i've i've followed your husband a little while on the internet yeah i actually work in communications and marketing in the field of education so i am not medical in any way okay except in one very important way which i think we'll get to a little bit later on so i, I mentioned to one of my opera residents as they were coming downstairs to do a consult for me and I was like, I'm going to be talking to Glock and Fleckham. And is there anything you want to know? And they were completely stumped. They couldn't think of anything. <laughs> the best question that they could come up with was, would you choose ophthalmology again? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. It's, a, it's actually the only reason, really, I'm able to do all this social media stuff is because I, I have a, a pretty decent work-life balance and can, can take, take all this stuff on. That's one reason is just because it, being an ophthalmologist does afford me the time to be able to do things like go and give the keynote at ASAP and, uh, you know, post all these videos on social media. Also, I'm just kind of a weirdo and I like eyeballs. You know, normal people don't devote their career to the eyeball. It's, it's a little bit of a strange thing, I, I think, to do. He also doesn't remember a single thing about anything below the neck, so he kind of has to well, choose. Well, it's because I'm an ophthalmologist that yeah, I don't remember. Yeah, but if you had to choose again... He'd be limited in his choices. Oh, that's true. I couldn't go back so, and do anything else. I'd have to go through med school again. One of the actual questions that I solicited from some Twitter readers, listeners, whatever they are, um, was, <laughs> does the neck count as 
you know, the rest of the body, or is that still part of the head? There are very few things in the neck that interest me. Uh, really, um, the only thing would be, you know, anything that affects the, like, Horner syndrome. So you got those uh, sympathetic fibers that uh, do kind of yeah, get down there a little bit. Overall, though, I, w- I would consider the majority of the neck to be body medicine. <laughs> Another like medical like your real job question. Like, what do you actually do? Like, I feel like a lot of, no, no, no. I mean, like a lot of people subspecialize. Like, yeah, yeah. the eyeball is yay big, and by yay, I'm I'm holding my fingers yeah, about the size of like a small golf ball, maybe. Yeah. Um, even though I feel golf balls are standard sizes, yet you guys specialize in fifty bajillion different things. Yeah. Which of those little tiny eye pieces do you specialize in, or do you do the whole eye? It's it's ridiculous, isn't it, that there's seven subspecialties uh, for an organ that's uh, uh, 22 millimeters long. But to answer your question, I do the whole eye. So I'm a comprehensive ophthalmologist. I got to the end of med uh, residency and decided I didn't want anything to do with training anymore. So I did not do a fellowship. I just decided to get a job. And I love it because as a comprehensive ophthalmologist, I basically kind of, you know, see whatever walks in through the door with eyes. And then uh, if anything is really difficult or unusual, I get to send it to any number of subspecialists that I work with who are much smarter than me. And so... uh, Well, that's what we do in emergency medicine. It's great. Deal with most things, but as soon as it exceeds our capacity, I know the right person to find. I have no regrets about not doing a fellowship, and I wish other ophthalmologists... Uh, finishing residency felt comfortable being comprehensive ophthalmologist because we need more of them. Why not emergency medicine? I don't know. It seems really hard. It's just like... He's very lazy. Well, I mean, I just, you know, I don't know. I like like sleep. I'm like, I feel like I'm physically fit, but not like emergency medicine physically fit. Like you guys are, you're different... um, Breed. breed of physician you're just you're you're so unique i feel like it, it, you just there's the, the personality to become a, an emergency physician is is fairly unique and i don't think i have it so i've seen some of your spoofs what what personality if you had to sum us up um do you think we actually are you're uh, adrenaline junkies yeah you, you love the the being like in the thick of like just very uh, stressful, difficult situations. It, like it energizes you. It it makes you the excitement is what is what drives you a lot of the time. And I, I'm not that way. I, I like my routine. You know, I I like uh, knowing what my day is going to be before I have that day. The the routine of clinic of 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 having my cataract surgeries that I do. And I saw you shiver whenever I said clinic because, uh, and that's exactly it, right? Yeah, there's like, there's no, that's like one of the greatest fears for emergency physicians is putting you in a clinic and having you, uh, you know, do routine, you know, exams all day. Like, that's not what you want to do, right? But like, he gets to just sit in a chair in the air conditioning and he's in and out and like, five minutes yeah it's it's I, I like my routine it's good and so we we have very different jobs but we do have a little bit of overlap because uh, occasionally you have to examine an eyeball or two or pretend that we did before yeah. we make a compound call uh, you check vision you know it's yeah it's, 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 it's decent 
<laughs> I press I press eyeballs like this to check for. Hey, that's good. Know, I tell people to do that whenever. Pumps. Well, because you don't have a, a working tono pin, right? It's it's um, there's only actually one tono pin. Uh, for all of emergency for all medicine. of emergency medicine oh, I didn't know that. in the in the country, wow. and it just travels around uh, to different <laughs> Sisterhood states. Sisterhood of the traveling tonopin. And right now it's in Wyoming. One of my buddies wanted to figure out if you were ever going to do a EM spinoff of biker ER doc versus the cargo pants scrub top ER doc versus the actual ER doc that wears a white coat. There are ER docs that wear white coats. Oh yeah. Really? I'm I gonna... used to pre-pandemic. Oh. And then afterwards, I just gave up all hope. I've only ever seen like the vest, the, like the Patagonia vest. You know, you guys love the vest. That's that's like a thing, right? Just because you don't see them doesn't mean they don't exist. Well, I don't right? see any of them. Like you got to yeah, realize that. Clear. Like I I don't. Uh, in fact, I I've I've dressed up as in this biker outfit so many times now that I just I in my mind that's the only thing you all wear. Uh, because remember, as an ophthalmologist, I try very hard not to go to your place of work. Well, that that was actually a question, again, from um, listeners, readers, Twitterers. Like, why is it so hard to get an ophthalmologist to come to an ER? They're, they're fragile creatures. Well, we, it is true. The hospital scares us. That's one thing. In reality, we can do so much, uh, a much better job at being an ophthalmologist in our safe space, which is clinic because we actually do have like functioning equipment there and we have everything we need in the clinic. We have like a slit lamp and it works and a tono pen and, and all the other things. And for the most part, ophthalmology problems are not an emergency in, in the sense that, you know, you think of an emergency, right? It's, it's something right. that, that can wait and that we can see in clinic uh, where we are much more comfortable. And so uh, also it's, it's just inconvenient. To, to come in, obviously. Bottom line is we don't really have to most of the time. That's that's really the yeah. truth of it. But I play most up the stereotypes, true. right? I play I play it up. Oh, yeah. You know, it's it's you know that's kind of what I do. I embellish. No, I, I I appreciate them. I mean, I'm not a Patagonia adrenaline junkie ER doctor. Sometimes I'm more like the I guess white coat cerebral post pandemic. Let me barely even touch the patient because I have residents and sit around and you know become a diagnostician. <laughs> Uh, one, one of the folks on Twitter wanted to understand a little bit of your writing process. Like, how do you come up with this stuff that you're going to do? And I say the writing process occurs a little bit over time. You know, sometimes I'll get an idea and I can flush it out in my head pretty, pretty easily and pretty quickly over the course of a couple days. I'll just kind of come up with a few jokes and then so I, and I don't write it down. But if I'm incorporating a lot of different characters and there's a lot of moving parts, I can't really keep track of it uh, in my head, which Kristen knows I, I, I don't like to write things. I'm not a very organized person. No, not in, at all. In general. Um, but uh, um, so if, it, if, if the skit's going to be more complicated with a lot of characters, uh, then I will write out a, a, a script. And so... Once I have a script formulated, then I'll sit down and record, which the recording, editing, posting, all that's usually a, a couple hours. Kristen, do you help out with that process? Are you involved in the creative process at all? Or do you are you like one of us just waiting for the finished product? <laughs> I'm not waiting. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, every once in a while I'll, you know, 
toss an idea out there or, you know, we'll just be having a conversation and I'll say that would be a funny skit or, you know, sometimes I'll kind of throw things out there. But for the most part, he's he's writing that himself. And my contribution is to allow the rest of our lives to keep running while he's in this room with the door shut for three hours. So (laughs) (laughs) see what what I do uh, often, though, is before I post something, I actually, I like to show it to Kristen uh, because I know that she's not going to like sugarcoat it. And, and her, her reaction is going to be very honest. And so if I show her something and I don't really get any reaction whatsoever, it's not going to be very good. Like it's not going to go off that well, but if I get like a legitimate, like chuckle out of her as she's watching it for the first time, then it's going to go off. It's going to be really popular. And so it's, it's a, I like that because it, it's, um, you know, she doesn't just. Yeah, I'll just, know. I've heard it all at this point, <laughs> 16 <laughs> years in. So sometimes it's just more like I'll watch it and I, it didn't tickle my particular funny bone because I've just kind of heard it all over the years, but I will know, yes, that's good. People will like that. And I'll say that. Um, it's good but feedback yeah, for me. If he can actually make me make a sound of some kind, which is about <laughs> the extent of it at this point, uh, then it's pretty good. Me and, and uh, my daughters, our daughters got a, a pretty good chuckle out of Bean Buddies. That was like a full-on laugh, I think. Yeah, Yeah, it was in one of the, that was a good one. the ortho skits where he calls the kidneys Bean Buddies. That was, that was fun. I like that. that yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I make myself laugh whenever I'm coming up with these ideas, too, which is always yeah, fun. Let's jump a little bit um, to your brush with death. Let's talk to Kristen about that one. Because I'm assuming you don't remember much. Which one? <laughs> the, well, the only one I know about. He had like a sudden cardiac death. At, the real, the, the yes, real yes, yes. brush with death. Yeah, so he and, was already uh, a, a two-time yeah. cancer survivor at that point. But, mm. but yeah, that one was certainly the most dramatic. Yeah. So can you walk me through what actually happened? A guy, I had a colleague, one of mine, she's an emergency physician, that this happened to her husband, like a sudden cardiac death in their mm-hmm. house. Um, he unfortunately did not survive. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, hearing y'all's story about that brought that to the forefront for me. Yeah. Um, listening to it, so you know, I'm, I'm very glad that you know you're blessed to survive. Yeah, yeah. He it was the most bizarre thing because he was just perfectly healthy as far as we knew, and it was a very normal day. Um, it was, we had just had Mother's Day, so it was, you know, the night we went to sleep on Mother's Day, um, it was overnight that he had his sudden cardiac arrest, so um, I think it was like 4.45 in the morning or something, and he started making these really loud snoring noises that woke me up, um, and I just kind of thought he was snoring, and just sort of shoved him and, you know, just nudged him to try to get him to wake up and he didn't respond to that. So then I just kind of pushed him harder and he didn't respond to that. And, you know, I started saying his name and nothing. And so then I started to get like, okay, something is bizarre and wrong with this. Like the sounds he was making were getting more and more kind of urgent sounding, panicky sounding. Um, they were respiratory and it was May of 2020. So obviously my first thought was COVID. Um, but like I said, I'm not medical 
in any way. So I had no idea um, what was going on. You know, I learned later that that was agonal respiration. Um, but I had had no experience with that. So I just knew something is not right here. This is weird. This is bad. Uh, so I called 911 and the dispatcher is the one that recognized that I needed to do CPR. So she uh, walked me through that and did 10 minutes of CPR before the paramedics came in. Um, I couldn't move him off the bed because he, he can't really see here, but he's over a foot taller than me and probably a good 100 pounds or so on me. And I had actually just had a cervical disc replacement a few months before. So I was like, I don't have confidence that I can safely get him off the bed without hitting his head on the nightstand or hurting myself in an you know, incapacitating way. So, uh, so I just had to do it on the bed. And I don't know, thankfully, I don't know why he survived and some people don't in we still don't know what caused it so you know I have no idea but I'm glad that I was was there and that it all worked out well, we're glad uh, very glad about that as well and then how long was the, the recovery process afterwards I mean I um, so I was in the ICU for 48 hours you were no um, you went in early Monday morning and you came home by dinner on Thursday Okay. And, you know, the physically the recovery was, was pretty straightforward. Um, you know, I just, I had some burns on my chest from the AED, um, paddles and, uh, my, I did get a, a, um, an implantable defibrillator and that was a pretty easy recovery as well. So I have a subcutaneous ICD, um, and, um, and so that was the physically it was, it was fine. So it was the emotional and mental recovery that, that, that has taken a lot longer, uh, just both me personally and as a family, you know, working through some of the anxiety and some of the, you know, dealing with, uh, you know, what do we tell the kids and how, you know, how are they going to handle this going forward? And, and so everybody focuses on, you know, oh, you survived. That's great. And it's like, yeah, that is, it's amazing. But but there's so but much we're more surviving. to it. It's yeah. not over. It's an ongoing process. And yeah. um and it just it, it, it just impacts that experience impacts so much of your life in so many different ways that you never expected. And once the initial joy of coming home wears off, then you're left with, with dealing with all these other issues. Um and then you add like you know insurance issues on top of that and you know and and that's that's something i've talked about a lot is you know mm -hmm. dealing with all the having my insurance company cover the the hospital bills and all that stuff and and the understanding that our you know patients are going through this type of thing and that was, that was a new experience for me is having to deal with that aspect of of being a patient yeah so in his case they the hospital was covered but the provider was not yeah so it was it was i was a surprise build you know it was a surprise billing issue which now probably wouldn't happen because of the no surprises act that that started this year um but it was a huge pain and um and so that certainly was a big part of just the overall recovery from from the event was having to deal with that and the financial burden of that 
in addition to all these other things we were trying to get through and, and, and deal with and reconcile and, um, uh, as a family. And, um, you know, fortunately, uh, as a, as a physician, you know, it, it didn't, you know, devastate us financially by any means. Um, and I recognize that, you know, the privilege that, that I do have in that, um, and understanding that lots of people out there don't have that. And, uh, it's something that, you know, we've talked a lot about, um, and trying to, and that's part of why a lot of my content is about our, you know, healthcare industry and health insurance. And I make those videos talking about all these, these aspects of, of health insurance, um, you know, because that had such a big impact on me as a patient and a physician. Yeah. And as you but, know, someone with a large platform and privilege, it just, it only seems right that, you know, we'd speak out for people that don't have as loud of a voice, unfortunately. So. Well, for one, I'm personally very happy that you're using your platform to speak out on that. It's one of the issues that I'm very much concerned about. And one of the big issues with surprise billing, balance billing is one of the issues that ASAP is very much worried about. And the ability of insurance companies to handle us as emergency physicians in mm -hmm. ways where we're obligated to take care of their quote unquote customers, regardless of whether or not their customers are going to pay us. I think that you've experienced it and you, you've done a great job, I think, of trying to illustrate that. And I'm, I'm kind of glad in a way, not glad that, you know, you had to go through this, but glad that you're able to put that physician spin on it. Because mm -hmm. I think a lot of times what we hear about surprise billing tends to be from the other side, from the non-physician side, from a, a pure patient standpoint. And where a lot of the blame seems to be cast, a lot of times the finger gets pointed at us oh, in yeah. the ER yeah. um, or with anesthesia or radiology, never the ophthalmologists. <laughs> um, it, it, it's refreshing to to get that perspective from you. So, tell me how you feel about United Healthcare and all those <laughs> other wonderful uh, entities that extract money out of our system. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's terrible the way things are set up. And and the you know, talking about you know the physicians taking a lot of the blame, you know that's right out of the United Healthcare, Cigna, Aetna. That that's right out of their playbook. That's that's what they. That's what they're wanting. They're wanting to deflect blame. Look how much doctors are compensated. You know, this is this is the problem. And you see it. You see people on social media. Every time I post something about health insurance, those are the comments. Like, oh, this is interesting coming from a guy who takes big pharma money. You know, it's it's like like there are these narratives that have been perpetuated, and a lot of it is, is coming from from, you know, health insurance, because they know, they know, like, how everybody knows how much money they make. And so the fact that they're, you know, trying to deflect blame onto physicians um, for the high cost of health care is, is silly to me. Uh, and, um, and unfortunately, they're very effective at lobbying, at, at kind of putting these narratives out there, right? This is, this is kind of what they do. It's a big part of what they do. So I'm not, a, I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan to answer your question. Thank you very much for joining us on ASAP Now. Hope to see you guys in San Francisco. 
Um, if you've never been to San Fran, we have a really nice Four Perfect Days in San Francisco article in our upcoming ASAP Now issue, which will tell you what to do, things to see, what to eat, neighborhoods to visit, all that kind of thing. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. So that's it for us this episode. I'd like to give another thank you to Dr. Paschow, Dr. Dark, and Dr. and Mrs. Gluckenflecken for giving us their time on this special podcast. We hope you all enjoyed listening. Just because we didn't cover it here doesn't mean that there isn't still tons of content in the September magazine of ASAP Now waiting for you in your mailbox. So be sure to check out the How to Network article at ASAP 22 by Dr. Angela Seiler-Fisher. And there's an awesome San Francisco feature on things to check out while we're all there for scientific assembly in the city. Now we'll be back next month with more content on Nowcast. Thanks again for tuning in and look forward to a little more medical content. And we'll be bringing back some medical humanities content as well next month. As always, we are wanting to grow and evolve as you all grow and evolve. And we would love to hear any feedback from you. Tweet us if you got an idea at ASAP now or feel free to tweet me direct at Amy Faith Ho. We would love to hear your thoughts and feedback and keep you tuning in. So thanks, everyone. See you all next time and hopefully see you at Scientific Assembly.